It's wonderful to be here with all of you today. We have a wonderful crowd here for which we are thankful. We have quite a few visitors that are here too, and we would hope that you would feel as you are, and that is our honored guest. I hope and pray that what we have to consider for a little while today would be both edifying and encouraging to you. As you can see, I have on the screen the title of our lesson, and it's entitled, Truly Blessed. You know, I think it's neat when you go up to someone and you ask them how they're doing. I think it's neat when they say, well, I'm blessed. I think it's a great mindset. I think it's a great attitude when people say that they're blessed. Because when you say you're blessed, you take all of the emphasis off of yourself and you put the emphasis on somebody else. And obviously, when people say that I am blessed, what they're saying is they're saying I'm enjoying the blessings in my life that have come from God. And may I say before we go any further, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from above. That means this. Everything that's good in life, every blessing that's good in life is because of God. But what I want to do today for just a little while, I want to talk about what Jesus said about being truly blessed. In fact, it was so important. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus devotes 12 verses there on the subject of what it really means to be truly blessed. As we begin, we notice Matthew chapter 5, and we'll study verses 3 through 8 this morning. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And finally, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These verses are oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. And may I say that when you discuss the idea of the Beatitudes... We must interpret every one of these from a spiritual perspective. If we deviate from a spiritual perspective, we'll lose the context and we'll lose the meaning. So, we're talking about things that Jesus dealt with. In fact, he actually is giving us spiritual requirements for citizens of the kingdom. Now, interestingly about the word Beatitudes. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought... That Jesus was saying that beatitudes meant these are attitudes that we need to be or ways we need to be. So therefore, we've come up with this word be attitudes. But you know, that's not what that's talking about at all. In fact, all we got to do is look at the very first word, and that is the word blessed. And the word blessed comes from a Latin word, beatus. Beati is the plural form of that word, and it means blessed. In the Greek, it means happy, fortunate, and blissful. So what Jesus is saying is, Jesus is using the word blessed, and by the way, that's where we get the word beatitudes. It's talking about blessings. It's talking about being fortunate and happy and blissful. Jesus actually uses it to symbolize happiness that is based on pure character and holiness. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is using this word, blessed, to symbolize happiness 
that is based on pure character and holiness. One scholar wrote the following. He said, scriptural blessedness is not based on outward circumstances or superficial feelings, but in the reality that one is dedicated to God and is approved by him. To be approved by God, one's life must be molded by the principles in his word. So, all that being said, the Beatitudes teach us about faith, how to have faith and how to be a person of faith. And if we're going to have faith, it has to have a beginning. Have you ever considered that? Faith has to have a beginning. We talk about sometimes people don't have enough faith. But faith is something that has to have a beginning, and it does. Matthew chapter 5, this is the great Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with the first thing that it begins with is being poor in spirit. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the word poor can oftentimes be a very relative term. For example, I might be poor compared to somebody that's wealthy, but it's relative. If I go to a third world country, I may seem rich next to them. So sometimes we can use the word poor and it's very relative. In other words, compared to what? But the word that's found in this passage, poor, is not a relative term. It's a word that literally means to be destitute. Crouching, cowering, and cringing. What an interesting definition. Let me tell you what it means. What we're talking about is from a spiritual perspective, Jesus said that blessed are those that are poor or destitute in spirit. Does that mean that you think bad about yourself? That you put yourself down? That you hate yourself? Absolutely not. What you're saying, though, is you're saying that I am absolutely nothing without Jesus. From a spiritual perspective, you are destitute spiritually. Let me give you the flip side of when that didn't happen. Remember in John chapter 8? Jesus was dealing with those Pharisees and he said, I'm going away and you will look for me, but you won't find me because where I go, you can't come. And they said, well, he's going to kill himself because he's saying where he's going, we can't come. Remember all that? What was the problem? They didn't realize they had a sin problem. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't recognize the fact that the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. They weren't poor in spirit. And Jesus told them, you're going to die in your sins. Jesus said the only way to the Father is through the Son. So everybody, everybody has to come to the realization, I'm nothing without Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. It is the beginning of faith. But then there's more. We go to the next verse, and Jesus talks about mourners. Now, I have to mention this before we go any further. If you're a child of God and you're hurting, is God there for you? He certainly is. If you lose a loved one, and you stand over a newly made grave of a loved one and you mourn and you ask of God for help. Does he help you? Yeah, he sure does. Is that what this is talking about? No. Remember, we are dealing with a spiritual perspective. 
So let's just stay with me on this. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Now you know what's interesting about the word mourn. There's nine different words that can be translated in the New Testament. Nine different words that describe someone's sorrow. Of all the words that can be translated from sorrow, the word that is found here from the original for mourn is the strongest of every one of them. It literally means something that is great. It's talking about something that is difficult. It's talking about something that is hurtful. But spiritually speaking, what's he talking about? He's talking about this. He said, blessed are those that mourn. Now, from a spiritual perspective, here's the answer. Blessed are those that mourn over their sin. You know what that means? It means you have godly sorrow. Isn't that great? Because that leads to repentance. You change your life. It begins by being poor in spirit. I'm nothing without Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. I see that I have sin in my life. I see that Jesus died on the cross for those sins. I want to be saved. Isn't that great? So what do you do? You have godly sorrow over your sin. Now let me just say this. Wouldn't it be awful if there was no solution? Wouldn't it be absolutely terrible if you recognized you were in sin but there was no solution. You know what Jesus said? Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. How is that? Because there's an answer. Look at the answer. 1 Peter 3.21. This is the King James rendering of this verse. I like, it. I like how it reads in the King James. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why are you going to be comforted? Because there's an answer. There's an answer. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. But what about after that? Are you going to sin? Yeah. Are you going to make mistakes? Yes, you are. In fact, the Bible says that a man that says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we understand that. And in 1 John, we also learn that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, that's Jesus Christ. So, here's the great answer. We contact the blood of Jesus at baptism. We rise to walk in newness of life. That is comfort to us, understanding. We got rid of our sins. But you know what? We're going to make mistakes. So here's something else. We get to do this. When you sin after that, in 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the answer. So blessed are those that mourn over their sin with godly sorrow leading to repentance. They're going to be comforted. There's an answer. That's great stuff. What else? What about the meek? You know, sometimes people think meek is weak. But it's not. It is the absolute ultimate of strength. Do you know why? Because it's the only thing that we can do. It's not a timid thing. It's not a, it's not a, a weak thing. It's something that we do by choice. 
And have you ever stopped to consider any time in your life where there's submission from you at all that took a choice and that took strength? What about meekness? What did Jesus say? Blessed are those that are meek, that are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's it mean to be meek? And by the way, it's an act of strength because it's a choice. It means this. Be gentle. Be humble. Considerate. Mild. Unassuming. And courteous. Every one of those are attributes that the child of God is supposed to have. Right? So, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean this earth. And it doesn't mean that if you are meek, you're going to have a big windfall of finances rolling your way. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, the language could actually be translated, for they shall inherit a allotted portion of land. Remember when the children of Israel promised the land of Canaan? Physical Canaan? It's with reference to that. It's the language of that. But we're not talking about literal physical land now. We're talking about spiritual applications. So spiritual Canaan is heaven. What is Jesus saying? He said, blessed are those that are meek, for they will inherit their allotted portion in heaven. Great blessings. So that's the beginning of faith. But then there's more. There's more. There's the growth of faith. And you know, you've heard me preach on the subject of faith before many times over the years. And then one phrase when Jesus said, you have to have the faith of a mustard seed. Remember that? And what it was talking about is Jesus wasn't saying if you just have a tiny little bit of faith. They had that. A mustard seed is very small. What Jesus was saying is, he was saying you have to go back to what the principle of the mustard seed is. And that is, though starting off very small, it grows to greatness. Your faith has to grow. So there's the beginning of faith, but then there has to be the growth of faith. And Jesus calls that this, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what he calls that. Your faith has to grow. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, go back in your mind the very first one we said, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What you're saying is, from a self-righteous standpoint, you get rid of it all and you got a void. Okay? Then, in this one, you fill the void with the righteousness of God. And that's part of growth. You fill it with that. You take away self-righteousness and you fill it with the righteousness of God. You start being different. In addition to this, though, not only the growth of faith, the maturing of faith. The maturing of faith. And the first thing he lists is being merciful. Matthew 5 and verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, there's a little reciprocal law here. And really, if you think about it, it's very sobering. If I am going to have the mercy from God, then I have to have the, the quality or the characteristic of being merciful. Sometimes people are not merciful to others. Sometimes people demonstrate no mercy. 
Sometimes people come and they ask for forgiveness, but you don't extend any mercy. Sometimes you sit back and you think, yeah, well, we'll see. Little side note here. Have you ever stopped to consider that when it comes to your own personal forgiveness of someone else, there are no requirements? Have you ever considered that the person does not have to ask for forgiveness for you to forgive them? How do I know that? I'm going to name drop a good one. Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Stephen was being stoned to death, he said, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't you get it? When you let somebody, you're letting yourself off the hook. You're not going to be negatively influenced by it anymore. What are you doing? Showing mercy. Two things. Matthew chapter 7 talks about how you judge somebody and whatever mercy you have and whatever mercy you don't have. The same is coming back to you, right? But think of it this way. If I'm going to be merciful, I get mercy back from God. I need that. So do you. Number two, here's a practical benefit. If I'm a person that shows mercy to everybody else, don't you think that people are going to probably do the same for me? Maybe not in every case, but for the most part. People usually return goodness with goodness. Jesus dealt with those things. Mercy from God and also mercy from others. So we have the beginning of faith, the growth of faith, and the maturing of faith. Here's another one for the maturing of faith, and that's pure in heart. In Matthew 5 and 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, at some point in life, one scholar said, each of us must decide what is the highest joy for the thing that delights us and directs us. What we are determines how much we enjoy and what we have and what we do. So the heart of man determines who and what he is. It is his identity. And who we are and what we are determines our life. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned about the heart. All the emphasis is placed on the heart. Now, I read not long ago, and I thought it was interesting. And I got to tell you, I did go and confirm it. I Googled it. You know, we live in a Google age. You want to find out anything, just Google it. So I Googled it, and I came up with some sources. And what I'm going to tell you is true. There was a scientist, and he wrote an article. I read the article first. And the article said that the snowflake, which looks pure on the outside, and is oftentimes a symbol of purity on the outside, Every single snowflake has something in common. There's a speck of dirt at its core on the inside. I thought, well, surely not. So I looked it up. Many sources confirmed the same thing. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're, you're disproving your point. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is this. The snowflake appears on the outside to be one way. But what we're talking about in reality is it's dirty at its core. We're talking about what is at the core. And when it comes to human beings, it's the same thing. What we are at our core. When you look behind or beneath the facade. Gabe gave a lesson the other night, a couple Wednesdays ago. And he dealt with... Tearing down the facade. And he was right. 
That's my point right now too. What we are on the outside can be perceived as one thing. But what God does is God looks on the heart. God looks on the inside. That's what God cares about on the inside. Look beneath the facade or the dressing. A mature faith reflects the change, get this, in someone who recognizes his tremendous need for God and who has sought him with intense desire. Faith changes a person on the inside. If, G- if Christianity hasn't changed your life, you got some work to do. Jesus has to change your life. And Jesus called it here pure in heart. In other words, the result is not a cover, but it's a reflection of the image of God that's in our hearts and is determined by what we are inside. Just some defining terms here. What does it actually mean to be pure? It means to be cleansed or purified. Please get this. When I say pure, I'm not saying perfect. And if a person is thinking that they're going to be perfect, it's not going to happen. And if a Christian has set aside a standard before they become a Christian, for example, that I could never be that good, I could never be perfect, therefore I won't obey the gospel and try to serve God. You're missing the whole point. It's not a matter of being perfect. It's a matter of being cleansed and purified. It is unmixed with the things of the world, the worldly things, the fleshly things, the sinful things in life. Unmixed. When we combine the things of the world with the things in Jesus Christ, you know what we're doing? We're actually putting oil and water together. They don't mix. Remember last Lord's Day, I talked about fear, overcoming fear. And I said, faith and fear are at odds with each other. They are. So you cannot be a person of faith if you're a person of fear. What drives you? So when you are a Christian and you have the things that we have in Christ and we're cleansed and purified, we keep those worldly things outside. We keep them away from us. You know why? They don't work. They don't go together. They're like oil and water. Little example, and I don't have time to go in these passages, but in Matthew 23, you remember when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, first cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, and that the outside may be clean also. We all know that, okay? If you're going to clean the dish, don't just buff the outside, you got to clean the inside. How do you do that? Submerge it in the water, clean the inside, it takes care of the outside. Okay. There's something else, though, that they would have understood when Jesus said those words. The cup and dish that he was referring to, they were not just some ordinary cup and dish. In the time historically around when Jesus said that, Jesus was referring to a very special cup and a very special dish. It was the cup and dish that were used to serve delicacies. So in other words, you've got some dinner going on, you've got some function going on, and everybody's there, all the guests are there, and then here come the servants out, and they have a cup and a dish, the ones we're talking about right here. Everybody knew, here it comes, here comes the delicacies. You know what Jesus says? Nope, that's not you. You appear to be one thing on the outside, but that's not you. Inside you are extortion, 
and self-indulgence. So, the basic idea is that of integrity, singleness of heart, as opposed to duplicity and a double heart, a divided heart. You know, the Bible says that a double-manded mind is unstable in all his ways. Sometimes people struggle because they can't choose a side. They can't pick a lane. You got to pick a lane. You got to choose a lane. Years ago in high school, back in the 1980s, seems like a million years ago, I was running in a track meet. And this guy named Corey Ziegler never ran in a track meet in his life. And it was actually one of the funniest things you've ever seen. But he lines up, and we're going to run the 400 meter. Hated that race, about kill you. And you take off, and it's really a 400-meter sprint. It's, it's wide open. You're dead at the end. Corey Ziegler, for some reason, started in an outside lane. The gun went off. We went around the first turn, and here he comes. He comes barreling in all the way to lane one. And then he drifts out there by lane four, and then back in, and then back out. He did that the whole time. He came in first. He thinks, I won. No, he didn't compete lawfully. He was disqualified because he couldn't pick a lane. Let's not let that be for us, folks. As Christians, don't be disqualified because you can't pick a lane. Keep the things of a world where they belong and choose Jesus and pick a lane. Pick a lane. Singleness of heart is clear, clean purpose of heart that keeps us and helps us. It keeps the things that are in the world out of our life. If we're struggling on the outside, maybe it's because we're struggling on the inside. Okay, now, at this point in time, we have to talk about the heart. The heart of the Bible, we've dealt with various aspects of it. This lesson will tie it all together. This is everything that the Bible describes about the heart. Because we hear that a lot. We hear people say, oh, I feel it in my heart. We hear people say, this is about your heart. I love you all my heart. So, let's talk about that. In the Bible, the heart is described in several ways. Number one, it describes emotions. Now, you cannot take emotion out of the picture. And if a person thinks they're going to live the Christian life as a robot with no emotion, you're kidding yourself. What good is that? What good is that? But when we say that we have emotions, what we're saying is we can never be guided or directed by our emotions. It's not good enough. We're guided by the Word of God. We follow what the Word of God says, and we do so with every fiber of our being, even our emotions. Here's a couple of passages that uses the word as described as emotions. John 14 and 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Here's that fear-faith thing again. Don't be afraid have faith. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled. That's your emotions. Don't be afraid. What else? Let's do another one. Nehemiah 2 and 2. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. That's emotion. That's emotion. But sometimes also heart is intellect or it's the mind. 
in Mark chapter 2 and verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Now here, he's not talking about emotion. He's not talking about feeling. What he's saying is, why do you reason these things in your mind? Sometimes heart in the Bible is mind or intellect. Here's another passage in Hebrews 4 and 12. For the, Lord, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Also, sometimes you know what it is? It's the will of man. It's your will. How many times have we said God does not take away free will? It's true. There were two beings that were created with free will. One were angels and the other is man. All other aspects of nature don't have free will. We have free will. And sometimes the heart is referred to as or described as the will of man. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, I love this. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested to the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. How many times have you heard me say that my dad told me my whole life, you have to decide the person you want to be in advance and make the decision in advance. And if you're bouncing around like a ping pong ball, if you're bouncing around like that and always kind of getting messed up and making the wrong choice is because you haven't done this. You haven't purposed in your heart in advance what the decision is going to be and the kind of person that you're going to be. Jesus said this in Luke 21, verse 14. Therefore, settle it in your hearts that your will not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. So altogether, the biblical picture of the heart is that it's the entirety of the inner man. So, when we talk about somebody that has a pure heart, we're talking about somebody that has a mature faith. Let me give you some examples about this, about a mature faith. True Christianity is not simply a matter of reformed behavior. Now, behavior matters, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about changing something on the inside. It's a matter or condition of the state of a person's heart. And if you have a pure heart, please hear me. Because I know how it is. I know exactly how it is when you go in the world. And I, I'm in the world. I, I have to go out in the world too. If you have a mature faith that stems from a pure heart. You will have the courage to be different. If you don't have the courage to be different in your life, when all your friends are doing things they shouldn't do, you got some work to do. We don't have a mature faith because we don't have a pure heart. Jesus says, fix it on the inside. When you have that kind of faith, when you have that kind of heart, you know what? It's great. He you have the courage to even be different. Notice how it all works as a matter of the inner man becoming something new and better. We noticed this so far. 
Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. You get rid of all self-righteousness. No arrogance. You realize you're nothing without the Lord. That's on the inside. Then you're going to mourn over your sin. I have godly sorrow for my sin. I want to be saved. I got to do something about it. Jesus said, you know what? You're going to be comforted. That's the answer. Being baptized for the remission of my sins and start my journey as a Christian. What else? I'm not going to have any animosity toward other people. There's not going to be thoughts of retaliation toward others. I got rid of that. On the inside, I'm meek, I'm gentle. In other words, it is a choice that I have made on the inside. And then I'm going to have a growing faith. And I'm going to demonstrate that by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So, what I feel the void here, no self-righteousness here, I fill it with the righteousness of God there. And that is a mature faith. And I'm going to show mercy toward others. I'm going to do that because I'm going to realize that in my life, on Golgotha's brow on Mount Calvary so long ago, as we just see just even a glimpse of Calvary and what Jesus did for everyone, it ought to cause us to throw aside any kind of arrogance at all and be merciful because Jesus was by his act and God showed mercy through Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to show mercy to other people too. That's the kind of person I'm going to be. And you know what? I'm going to get mercy from God. That's what Jesus said. But then I'm going to do this. I'm going to be pure in heart. And that means that Jesus is reflected in my life. That's when Jesus Christ is actually formed in you. And you know, in every point, it's not the outward behavior, but it's the inward man that becomes something new and something better. And when you change it on the inside, it automatically fixes the outside. Have you ever heard somebody say something to a Christian about, you just look happy all the time? By the way, nobody, no Christian should walk around sour like you just ate a bowl of prunes. Nobody wants to be like that. Nobody's told to be like that either. And sober-minded means serious-minded about your faith. That's what that means. You ever heard somebody say something to a Christian about how happy they look? There's just something about them. There's something about them on their face. There was a Hindu man. He was a trader in, in India. He went up to a missionary and he says, what do you put on your face to make it shine? He said, sir, I don't put anything on my face. He said, it's something that we put on. It's not something that we put on on the outside, but something that comes from within. It's the reflection of the light of God in our hearts. So let me ask you all today, what are the things that are most important to you in your life? What's most important? And why does it matter? What's most important and why does it matter? This is why it matters. We talked about the importance of the heart, important stuff. Why does it matter? What's most important? Jesus said in Matthew 6 and 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, in closing, let me ask you this. How's your heart? What's it filled with? How would it be described? Faith that's matured is a wonderful blessing. 
It brings us into the very presence of God. And it allows us to reflect the image of God in our life. And you know what? Everybody's watching. And just maybe because of the demonstration of your attitude and your life, you may bring people to Christ that maybe they wouldn't even have known that you're a Christian had you not been that way in your life. I'm through this morning. Thank you so much for your kind listening. We never close a service without extending an invitation to someone that might be subject to the gospel call. We talked about that very idea that we are poor in spirit, but then there's an answer. Paul said, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Jesus then said in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus further said in Luke 13 and 3 and also verse 5, I tell you no, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus further said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. And Acts chapter 8 tells us that confession, the good confession, the only confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon taking those steps of obedience leading toward the point of salvation, 1 Peter 3, 21, the like figure wherein even baptism doth also now save us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.